Well, Christmas is definitely a season of rejoicing, and we particularly are happy to rejoice that the Lord God did not leave us in our sin, but cared so much for us that He would condescend, that He would come down to our lowly station and enter into our world. You know, if you think about all the other faith systems in the world, all the other religions that claim to have the answers for life, every every religion is preaching that we've got to somehow do the right things to make our way to God. But we're going to see the, the grace of the Lord on display, not only in the Christmas story today, but in the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 4, as we are reminded that God knew that we could not make our way to Him, that no matter how much we tried to be a holy and religious people on our own, that we could never earn our place in a perfect heaven next to the one who created us. And so He came down and entered into our existence and rescued us from our brokenness through the grace of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing truth and a wonderful, a wonderful revelation that God has loved us so much that He sent His own Son uh, to be a substitute for us on the cross, that our sins might be punished once and for all, that justice might be done, but that God's mercy would reign in those whom He calls to Himself. So we're in Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to uh, try to tackle a pretty big chunk of verses this morning as we've been preaching through this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to uh, several churches in the region of Galatia. We're going to be starting at verse, uh, verse 12 today, and we're going to read through verse 20. God's Word says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now, and change my tone, for I and perplexed about you. Last week, we began to see a shift in the Apostle Paul's tone, and it continues in this passage. Paul stepping away from the strict logical proofs that characterize the first three chapters of the letter to the Galatians. And here in chapter 4, he is expressing his pastor's heart for the people of that region. Notice the language of the last couple of verses of that section that we read. It says, My little children, he refers to them as his own offspring, his own sons and daughters. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul's describing himself as being in the painful process of bearing a child, and it's almost as if it's happening twice, like he's having to go through this again. He sees the Galatians as his own children in a spiritual way. But the life that he is hoping to give them is a spiritual life, an eternal life. To make sure that they have it, 
Paul has to convince them again of the true means by which God saves people. He must return to such basic principles, such basic doctrines, such as justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ, rather than in the hopes of dissuading the Galatians from drifting away from the truth and proving their professions of faith to be false. They have been confused by false teachers who have gathered and and began teaching those churches that Paul's gospel is only halfway true. It is not the complete truth. And so the Galatians' openness to this false doctrine, their willingness to be persuaded by these teachers who are teaching something different than Paul, their spiritual father, perplexes him. He's confused by their openness to it. It's perplexing because he had personally taught them the true gospel already. He had spent months with them agonizing over every detail of the gospel, helping them to sift through the confusion, helping them to see from Scripture how Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah that Israel had been waiting so long to receive. In his very first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had traveled through the whole region of Galatia, preaching Jesus Christ and establishing the churches there. In the verses we're studying today, Paul reminds them of some of the details of that time that he spent with them not long ago. He says, It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. What ailment is he talking about exactly? We can't be 100% certain. The Galatians who received this letter, they knew what he was talking about, but we have to speculate to a degree. It could be possible that he is talking about a condition of near blindness that we're pretty confident Paul suffered from for much of his ministry. In uh, different letters that he writes, he indicates to us that his eyesight was very poor. In fact, many times Paul would have an amanuensis, which was a a scribe who would write out his thoughts for him, and then he would sign the letter to show that it was truly from Paul. In one of his letters, he writes, see how what big letters I use as I write, indicating that he had to write large so he can see what he was writing. Uh, At other ports of Scripture, we see that he struggled with an ailment that was really disabilitating to him, and he prayed to the Lord God that God might remove it from him. He called it his thorn in the flesh. And so this sickness might be what he was talking about here to these Galatians, this disabilitating disabilitating hindrance that caused him to slow down in ministry. And that would make sense when he says, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. And and that's kind of a, a gruesome picture, but... It's an indicator of the great love that they had for him. He says, you loved me so dearly that you would have given me your own eyes if you could. You would have sacrificed what you had to fulfill what I lacked. So it's very possible that he was talking about blindness. And we know that this began when, uh, before he trusted in Jesus Christ, he was traveling on the road to Damascus. He was traveling on the way um, to persecute Christians. Paul was not originally friendly to the church of Jesus. In fact, he was an opponent to the church. And when he was traveling along, Jesus himself appeared to Paul and revealed his glory to Paul and said, Paul, why are you fighting against me? Why are you kicking against the goads? You're struggling against the will of God. And in that moment, Paul was struck blind. And for a time, he couldn't see until God removed like, something like scales from his eyes and allowed him to see again. And many theologians believe that perhaps he struggled with this poor vision for the rest of his life as a reminder Uh, of his stubbornness at first, his his slowness to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people believe that because he was so well-traveled that Paul had perhaps contracted a seafaring disease like malaria, that maybe that hindered him and cost him good health on his mission journeys. Perhaps it was 
complications from the physical punishment he had received uh, from preaching the gospel in places that were hostile to it. We know that one of the cities in Galatia was Lystra. And when he preached in Lystra, people were so upset that he preached these radical truths of God that they literally tried to murder him. They threw him into a pit and they threw large stones upon him. He was physically battered and left for dead. They drug him out of the city and left him to die. Miraculously, the Lord God caused him to stand and despite his wounds to continue preaching the gospel. So it's possible that maybe his face had a physical wound that was so severe that he looked deformed and that it was off-putting to people to hear this man preaching of truth but having such disfigurement from the wounds that he had been inflicted on because of his preaching. Or maybe there was some other unknown affliction. We don't particularly know what he's talking about here. Whatever it was that hurt Paul, it presented a trial to the Galatians. It wasn't easy for them to deal with this physical ailment. Whether it was just seeing his brokenness and, and, and having to deal with the ugliness of it, whether it was having to provide medicine for him, medical care or attention, or perhaps they had to dress his wounds and tend to his, his, his hurting body. Whatever it was, it was not easy for them to receive him, but receive him they did. They cared for him and stood by his side and gave him opportunity to preach, even though the thing that he was preaching, this gospel message, was so controversial. And so he's grateful for how they received him, but he rejoiced even more that they received Jesus Christ, whom he was preaching. It was one thing for them to be hospitable to Paul, but he truly rejoiced in the fact that they were hospitable to the truth that God had sent his son Jesus. This substitutionary sacrifice, what we call the spotless lamb, to be sacrificed on behalf of those who would trust in him so that their sins might be washed away forever. He, he took such great joy in knowing that these, his friends, his countrymen, would, would receive Jesus Christ in faith and become a part of God's family. So they had displayed what seemed like true faith. You know, we don't know the depths of a person's heart, but when you look at someone, you can see things that could give you confidence that they perhaps trust in Jesus and follow after the Lord God. He had saw fruits of the Spirit in them. He saw transformation where sin used to abound. Now holiness was beginning to rule. He saw differences in these men and women that would indicate to him that they truly trusted and responded in repentance to this gospel that was preached. They did exactly what Paul and Barnabas had prayed that they would do. They recognized their need for a Savior. They embraced the Son of God as the one and only sacrifice for their sins. They confessed their true faith in Him. They were baptized. They gave every indication that they truly believed. And they even received Jesus at great cost to themselves. Throughout the region of Galatia, we, we can read in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts of the many obstacles and roadblocks and oppositions that Paul and Barnabas and the other missionaries faced as they preached those, the gospel message in those different towns. And so they received Paul, even though it wasn't easy to receive him, even though it probably was controversial to their neighbors to receive this message of Jesus Christ and to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. When Paul and Barnabas had finished their journey, they doubled back and came through each city again. And when they did, those churches welcomed them in again and invited them to help establish greater leadership in those churches so that their congregations could be healthy before they sent them on their way back home to Antioch, Syria. So to hear these Galatian Christians were beginning to question the gospel that Paul had preached to them, this gospel that he thought had changed their lives, and that they were accepting this new hybrid gospel of grace in Jesus, but works that were necessary for someone to be saved, 
was astounding to, to Paul. He was perplexed by this. I imagine that Paul was also per- particularly confused by this latest development because these Galatian Christians, most of them weren't even Jewish believers. Most of them were Gentile believers. This false teaching that had infiltrated Galatia was the idea that you had to believe in Jesus, but then you had to be circumcised. You had to take the whole law of the Israelite religion upon your shoulders and live according to it. So Paul is astounded that these people who were not originally Israelites would be drawn back to this idea that you had to somehow work to earn your spot in heaven. But Paul is much more than just perplexed. He is also hurt. He is in many ways devastated by this news that his friends might be slipping back into false belief. Not because their regression would have somehow reflected badly on Paul's missionary journey. It wasn't that Paul was trying to to boast about great numbers of conversions or or brag about the fact that his his mission journey had been such a success. That's not what he cared about. What he cared about were the hearts of these individuals that he knew by name. These men and women that he had come to love, that he had prayed for diligently, that he had sought to shepherd and pastor in the faith. It hurt him because this false doctrine threatened the very heart of the gospel. This is spiritual life or death that Paul is dealing with with dear friends of his. If we cannot confess that we are saved by the work of Jesus alone, then we have no salvation. Ministers of the gospel must be self-controlled. We've learned that as we went through our our lesson series on elders and deacons. They've got to be people that can, can handle their emotions. But it is right for ministers to be emotionally invested in the people that they care for. And we see that in the heart of Paul here. We saw it in Jesus, didn't we? In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus sees the people and notices that they are like a sheep, or like a group of sheep without a shepherd. And he has great compassion on them and his heart breaks for them. So he desires to lead them and teach them the truth. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-8, through 8, where Paul is describing how the apostles had loved the people in that town of Thessalonica to such a degree that they were willing to give not only the gospel, but also their own lives, that they stood by, um, beside these men and women and sacrificed their time and their attention and their gifting to help that church become strong, to grow them in their faith. And we see it in chapter 9 of Romans, where Paul is, is brokenhearted over the lost in Israel, that so many of his own ethnic countrymen were rejecting Jesus, that he wished that even he might somehow be condemned so that they might receive faith and live. So Paul's ministry is motivated by love and by compassion. So to hear that they are straying from the very thing that can save them is a crisis to his heart. Paul loves them deeply, and the fact that they accepted him in his ailments and cared for him through that time suggests that they felt the same way, at least in the beginning. But Paul is afraid that they have begun to look at him differently now. And so in verse 16, he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? These false teachers had sowed dissension. They had begun to undermine the Galatians' trust in the Apostle Paul to the point where some of them were beginning to ignore Paul's uh, rebuke. We, this past week, had an opportunity to see a great interview between John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Church down south, and, uh, and a man named Ben Shapiro, who is a conservative political analyst. And if you haven't checked out that interview, it's worth watching. It's a little over an hour long, and, and uh, John gets a chance to talk about several aspects of the gospel, some very important things that Christians should be focused on 
And one of the questions that were asked of him, Ben Shapiro said, are you afraid that your stance on things such as homosexuality, things that are controversial that you see in the Bible, are you afraid that's going to alienate democratic people from coming to your church and from accepting Jesus Christ? And Pastor John's answer was that, in a sense, it is his goal to offend everyone. And that sounds a little bit abrasive to somebody. He explains himself. He goes into detail to talk about why. The gospel is, by its very nature, offensive to the natural heart of man. Because when we see the truth of the gospel, when, when we hear from God himself that we could not do enough good works to earn our place in heaven with him, when we hear that we are sinful to the core, that we need to be transformed by the power of God, that we can't do it ourselves, we are offended by that. We get defensive of our position. And so Pastor, Paul, or Pastor John was not saying that he intends to offend people because he likes to stir up controversy. He was saying that the very heart of the gospel that we preach as, as ministers of the true word is going to offend people. And if it doesn't offend people, then it's not going to incite change. There are, sadly, many versions of the gospel that have been so watered down that they just seem really, really easy for people to accept. They don't really address sin. They don't address the heart of man. But if the true gospel is going to get to the core of who we are and who we are not. We are not holy people apart from God. We are enemies to God until through faith in Jesus Christ we are washed clean of our sin and brought near into a right relationship with Him. When we insist on talking about the hard things, we take a measured risk, knowing full well that we, many of the people that we talk to will perhaps be angry with us. They, perhaps they will reject us because of the gospel that we preach. But we do no one any good by ignoring the important truths of life in a selfish attempt to make people happy with us. If a person is not at peace with God, there is no real peace, no matter how peaceful they feel towards you. So rather than shrinking away here, Paul draws attention to the offenses that threaten his relationship with his Galatian friends because there is too much at stake to just simply ignore their wrong thinking. In this passage, Paul gives his first imperative instructions in the whole letter. It's amazing. We're here in chapter 4, and Paul has not told the Galatians to do anything yet. The first instructions that he gives are found in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. There are several other places in the New Testament where Paul will encourage the churches to imitate him, not because he was some super Christian, but because he was imitating Jesus Christ. And he lived his life in such a way that he might be an example to his brothers and sisters of how to die to self, take up cross, and follow after Jesus. So we find this in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, and Philippians 3.17 and in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 where he encourages the churches to follow the pattern of faith that is set for them by their apostles. But here Paul adds a personal touch to this command. He says, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What does that mean? That means I, Paul, the apostle, have made the same mistake that you are on the brink of making yourselves. Remember that Paul was originally a Pharisee, a man who was well-versed in the law of Moses. He lived a life that was in very strict obedience to the law of Israel. 
He believed that that law and following that law was enough to justify him before God. He had made the very mistake that these false teachers were trying to get the Galatians to fall for. So he's saying, don't go down the same path that I have gone down. I've been down that path, and it doesn't produce the hope that you think it will. Though it might feel good to think that you can earn your way to heaven, though it might feel good to think that you can rise above your sinful state, and that through better obedience and better self-discipline, you can make yourself a friend to God, he's saying, you must reject that idea. I have gone to the end of that road, and it doesn't lead to heaven. It took Jesus himself appearing to Paul before he came to his senses and realized that it was only by the work of Jesus Christ that he might be washed clean of his sin and drawn near to God. So Paul is highly motivated to prevent these Galatians from wandering down that same hopeless path. Verse 17 says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. So who's this they that they're talking about? Paul is referring to those false teachers that had infiltrated the churches in Galatia, and were beginning to teach them that they couldn't just rely on their faith in Jesus Christ to save them, that they must be obedient to the law and follow it to a T if they hope to receive the grace of God's Son. Here Paul describes the tactics that these false teachers have used to undermine his friendship with them. He says, they make much of you. That's a very critical phrase to this section of scriptures. They make much of you. We have already seen that they had made little of Paul. They've been saying that Paul was not truly an apostle, that his message was only halfway to the truth. They have made the Galatians question Paul's validity and intent. But the other half of their approach was to make much of the Galatians. This is what we call flattery, friends. Flattery is the act of praising someone excessively, especially from motives of self-interest. These Galatians had come into those, or these false teachers had come into the Galatian churches and had spoken highly of these Galatians and got them to believe that their own righteousness was enough to redeem them. In the New Testament, one of the words that is used in the Greek language to describe flattery is elogeus. And this is the same word that is used for the word blessing. It can be translated both ways. So you see how tricky the nature of flattery is. You can say things that would be a blessing to a person, that, that seem really nice to them, that, that encourage them, and in doing so with the wrong intentions, you can cause them to, to become like a friend to you. You can make them drop their, their judgment and, and become self-deceived. The other word used in the New Testament, uh, Greek, to describe flattery is Kolokeia, which means fawning over someone to make them cozy up to you. So they will favor you so that you can have an advantage in your negotiations with them. In the Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament root word for flattery is kalak, which reveals a lot because the root of this word literally means to divide the spoils. It points to the idea of coming close to someone so that you might take from what they have, that you might gain what they've got, and, and basically treat them like spoils that you can plunder for yourself. Flattery is commonly used as a technique to win friends, to influence people, and is a powerfully effective tactic because people deeply want to believe they are value, valuable. Not only that, they deeply want to believe that they are valued by others, that others recognize their value, 
and will affirm and applaud the value that is intrinsic in them. We want to believe that so badly that people will sometimes willingly abandon their own good judgment to feel those feelings of affirmation and appreciation. Look at what Psalm 36 says, verses 1 through 2. The psalmist writes, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity, his sin, cannot be found out and hated. We don't always need somebody else to flatter us. Sometimes we flatter ourselves. As we evaluate our own spirituality, as we evaluate our own holiness, we often think much more highly of ourselves than we ought to because we don't want to see the sin that is within us. We don't want to see the the difficult work that we can't accomplish, that we must trust in Jesus Christ to accomplish. Flattery is not always obvious, but it is an integral component of any religious system that is works-based. What I mean by that is any religious means of attaining to God or eternal life that is dependent on us doing the bulk of the work. Salvation that is earned is ultimately a reward. There is no way around that. If salvation comes from doing the right thing, especially in comparison to others who probably don't do the right thing or not as well as we do, then that kind of salvation provides a framework by which we can prove our own self-worth. We can flatter ourselves. And we see this in various religions throughout the world. If you study Mormonism, they describe heaven as being a three-tier system where only those who are particularly obedient and who are sealed in the temple and follow the, the secret laws of Mormonism very diligently can attain to the third level of heaven. You see this in the Jehovah's Witness faith where they believe that the 144,000 saints who are described in the book of Revelations represents the vast total of the most highly obedient Jehovah's Witnesses throughout time who alone will attain to heaven, the rest of whom only get a new earth. You see this in Buddhism where the Buddhist believes that if they are noble and do good things and treat karma with respect, then when this life is done, they will be upgraded to a better life. They will take on a better form, a more noble form. And you saw it in the Pharisees, in the scriptures that we call the Gospels, where the the truth of Jesus is is preached. The Pharisees took their good deeds and they believed that those good deeds had secured them a place near to heaven. They saw themselves as better than the average Israelite because of their ability to keep not just the laws that God had given, but even more laws that they had added to it. The mindset is, I can do this. I have made mistakes, but I can overcome. I can make them right again. But where is the emphasis on that? Is the emphasis there on God and the work that He can do for us? Or is it on the man's heart himself? It's on man. And so the Judaizers approached the Galatian churches and proclaimed, yes, you need a little grace. You need God's good favor through Jesus. But you also need to step up and show God what you can do. You need to show God what kind of person you really are personally. To convince them that salvation is ultimately a reward for obedience is to make much of them. To flatter them with the idea that they can save themselves. The false teachers who were persuading the Galatians were appealing to their sinful nature by arguing that true salvation doesn't happen until one accepts that Mosaic covenant as the framework for holiness and lives strictly by its do's and don'ts, encouraging them to take their salvation into their own hands. 
Friends, you, uh, you might be sitting there right now thinking, well, I'm, I'm a professing Christian. I don't believe in salvation by works, so what does that have to do with me? You can commit the same error of self-flattery without professing to believe in a works-based salvation. When we let God save us by grace, but then each day as we live our day-to-day life out and make the choices that we make, when we're relying on our own wisdom and we're relying on our own strength to get through, when we're thinking of our own plans and we're not considering the plans that God has for us, we're essentially living like someone who is the God of their own life. So we're falling into that same pattern of of saving oneself that, that those who do not profess to be Christians adhere to. When we pray to the Lord God in a bargaining way, we say, God, if, if you'll do this, then I will do this for you. If you give me this blessing, then I'll be obedient to you in this way. When we have that kind of a bartering mindset with the Lord God, it reveals that we're not truly understanding and appreciating the fact that God's favor on us is not based on what we do to please Him. God loves us simply because He chooses to love us. When we look at other people around us and think to ourselves, wow, that person needs to get their act together. I wish they were as holy as I am. When we begin to look down our nose at other believers, at other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and think, man, I'm glad I'm not like that person, then we are subtly, in our hearts, believing a works-based gospel. Instead of embracing our church family as brothers and sisters, as, as, as individuals who have all become part of one family through the work that Jesus Christ did. So we must caution ourselves to not fall into the pattern of behavior. In verse 17, we learn that they made much of the Galatians, but for no good purpose. Their motives were not noble. They were not to, uh, to truly save these Galatians. Coming under the law wasn't accomplishing what they said it would accomplish. Rather, it was threatening to accomplish the opposite. If the Galatians believed the false teachers and put their faith in their works, then they would be trusting the wrong Savior. They would be trusting in themselves. Can you see how someone young in the faith might be swayed by the affirming message of the false teachers that flattered them and made them believe that they could save themselves through their work. Consider for a moment how that message echoes another false teacher who we will all be familiar with as we read in Genesis chapter 2. This is the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of God's revelation to us. We see Adam and Eve made in the image of God, made in the perfect place, a place where there is great union with God, There is no sin in this garden. They have everything that they need. The serpent, we read in chapter 2 of Genesis, disrupts that perfection by entering into the garden and asking Eve, the woman whom God had made, about the restrictions that he had put on her and Adam. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was this forbidden tree in the midst of the garden? It was the tree of the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil. Only God had the knowledge of of good and evil at this point. Adam and Eve had only been exposed to goodness. They were living in a positive state of utter dependence on God. They were clearly less than God. He was wiser than them, more powerful than them. He was more free than them. 
but they were still perfectly provided for and surrounded by perpetual blessing from God. The serpent's goal was to convince them that they could have more than what God in his graciousness had chosen to give them. The serpent employs several flattering lies in this passage. He says, you will not surely die. In other words, God speaks a big game, but you'll survive this. He's, he can't take your life away from you. He says, you will become more than what you are if you eat of that fruit. God knows that you will become like him. And God forbids you from eating that fruit for the very express purpose of keeping you from being like him. The great irony there is that God had made man and woman in his image. So in some very real and significant ways, they were already like God. But in tempting them to take on the knowledge that only God can handle, the knowledge of good and evil, the enemy was trying to flatter them to believing that they too could be like the Lord God, their creator, that they could have dominion over their own lives, that they might be God. Flattery has been life-threatening deception since the very beginning of mankind. By suggesting that the Galatian Christians needed to contribute obedience to their salvation, these false teachers that Paul is arguing against were feeding their egos and suggesting that they held their own destiny in their very hands. But there was a selfish component to the crusade of these false teachers as well. They were making much of the Galatians in hopes that those Galatians would make much of them. They hoped that these Galatians would see those false teachers and think, well, we're so grateful that you came. You have greater knowledge than Paul. You must be the true apostles of Jesus Christ. They wanted to be, they wanted to have their egos inflated as well. They wanted to be uh, told that they were wise and that they, they had leadership qualities and that they could be respected. But sadly, if the Galatians willingly bought into this deception that these false teachers were bringing to them, Paul warns that they would also be shut out. Shut out in two different ways. Shut out from salvation, most importantly. That they would no longer know the true gospel if they believed that their salvation hinged on their own obedience. And secondly, shut out from Paul. Because there can be no true fellowship between people who believe different things about the gospel. When it comes to the core, fundamental truths of the faith, we must be in agreement. We must be able to say amen. And this was threatening to be a divisive thing between the Galatians and Paul who started their churches. So friends, we must be very cautious not to let pride cloud our ability to discern right doctrine from false doctrine. The things that we believe will impact our relationship with God. And they will impact our relationship with one another. And because of the sin nature that exists in us, we are susceptible to believing things that are false, but make us feel better about ourselves. I want to, uh, to, to conclude by um, making it very clear that it is not wrong to be made much of in the right ways. There is a difference between flattery and encouragement. Verse 18 says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And so sincere encouragement has a place in Christianity. We are not to walk around saying, woe is me, we're just filthy sinners, and, and to be aesthetics who refuse to, uh, to rejoice in what God has done to make us new. Rather, we should be a people of great encouragement. But that encouragement must be framed in the truth. Sincere encouragement acknowledges what God has said of you. It is perfectly fine for us to remind one another, brother, you are made in the image of God. 
Sister, don't let somebody think of you as an object or as some terrible thing. You are made in the image of God. Don't let your value be defined by magazine covers or by society at large or by the opinions of the media. You are valuable because God made you in His image. This is a true statement. And it is an encouragement that can lift up the head of a brother or sister who is depressed, who has a wrong view of who they are. If you've trusted in Jesus, you've been redeemed by grace. Sin no longer has power over you like it used to. So we can encourage one another. We can encourage one another to leave sinful things behind and to rely on the grace of Jesus Christ and the power that we have in Him so that we might be near to Him and grow in Him in grace and in truth. We can remind one another that as Christians, we are children of God, that we have been chosen by Him, adopted into His family, that God desires to bring us near and to let us eat at His table so that we might have a full inheritance in the kingdom that is coming. So we, we can encourage one another by acknowledging the true things that Scripture has told us about what it means to be a believer. True encouragement, sincere encouragement, rejoices in the victory that God has displayed in your testimony. When you could talk about the ways that God has already changed a person and, and has proved His presence in their lives, and you can say, look at how far God has taken you. Look at what you used to be compared to what you are today. Can't you see the work of God's mighty hands in your lives? How encouraging is that, brothers? We can, we can lift one another up in grace much more than we do. Encouragement is one of the cheapest but most powerful ways that we can love one another. Simply come alongside your brothers and sisters and point out the good things that God is doing in their lives and remind them that He is at work, that He is active, that He is worthy of praise because of what He is, of what he is doing in their lives. And thirdly, sincere encouragement reminds us that we have great hope in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I mentioned this or alluded to it earlier when Paul had this great, uh, this great illness, this great thorn in his flesh, he prayed that the Lord God would heal him from it. And you'd think that would be a very noble prayer, a prayer that God would want to answer because this is his servant. Paul is the one who is going around preaching the truth and standing for the truth and correcting false doctrine. That this is a man who is starting churches and, and establishing leadership in those churches and making God's church be healthy. Wouldn't God want to heal that man of his afflictions so that he would be more free to do the things that God would want him to do? And yet in response to Paul's prayer, which he prayed three different times, please God, heal me of this thorn in my flesh, God responded to, to Paul saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul was not healed from that affliction while he was here on earth. God chose to allow him to, to have this limitation, this disability that held him back to a degree because it was more important to God that Paul stay connected and dependent upon the Lord than it was for Paul to be comfortable and unhindered. And friends, we, we can encourage one another but by reminding each other that God has a plan for everything that we go through and that the great hope that we carry as believers is that we don't belong in this world anymore. If we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that there is a better reality waiting for us. That there is a heaven that one day we will enter into. A heaven where there will be no more weeping. There will be no more illness. There will be no more brokenness. But we will stand in the truth that God has, has established for us. That we will shed the tendencies that we have to fall in that pattern of our sin nature. That we will no longer be tempted in any way. That we will 
forever love what is good and choose always to obey our God. What an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, that we can point one another to the return of our King and remind one another that no matter what we're going through now, there is a better reality that waits for those who believe. Verse 12 again, Paul said, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Let us see the example of the Apostle Paul. and Let us rejoice in his diligence to cling to the truth and to not give in to the temptation of allowing others to flatter us into false belief or into buying into doctrines that are not true and are not from the Lord God. Let us stand firmly in what we know to be good, even though it is humbling to us, even though it brings us low so that Christ might be exalted. Let us find encouragement, not in the fantasies of our minds, but in the reality of the Scripture that God has revealed to us, His people. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for your great day that you've given to us and for the joy we got to experience on the faces of those little girls and boys as they came up here and told us about the hope that they're learning about in Jesus Christ. Father, we we lift them up to you right now, Lord, asking that you would redeem our children, that you would save them. Father, uh, we're not born innocent. None of us is, God. We are born with a tendency to rebel against you, God. We were born with sinful hearts. Every human being who walks this earth needs the salvation that only you can provide. And so I pray that you would give us eyes that are wide open to the deceptions of the enemy, which would have us believe that we are the ones that must put our lives right, that we've got to pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps, that we've got to help ourselves before God will help us. Lord, all of that simply feeds our ego. Help us to realize in humility, Lord God, that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And let us rejoice in the great salvation we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Keep us as we go, God. You are holy and good. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Merry Christmas, my brothers and sisters. Be blessed as you go out, and uh, hopefully we'll see you back next Sunday.